This is Dessa, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salons.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. I heard this music coming from a little box. In those days, they had little transistor radios, right? And somebody had a transistor radio outside the office. And I went over and I listened. I went, what the hell is this? Eleanor Rigby. Oh, my God. What are the Beatles up to? You know, it spurred me on to want to do better music. I started writing songs, very bad songs, but you keep trying, you know? Today's guest is one of the central artistic forces behind the progressive rock movement. John Anderson is best known as the co-founder of the band Yes with Chris Squire in 1968, a British singer-songwriter famous for his soaring vocals on such classic songs as Roundabout, Long Distance Runaround, and You and I, and Owner of a Lonely Heart. Anderson has enjoyed a prolific career across six decades. Over the years, he has collaborated with a wide variety of musicians, including Van Gelis and Jean-Luc Ponty. He has shared his talents as a guest artist on classic records by King Crimson, Tangerine Dream, Iron Butterfly, and Mike Oldfield, among others. In 2017, Anderson was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Yes. In 2019, he released his 15th solo album entitled 1,000 Hands. The album features such guest performers as Steve Howe, Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson, Journey keyboardist Jonathan Kane, drummer Carmen Apice, and jazz pianist Chick Corea. Welcome, John Anderson. Dr. K, I believe. We're so delighted to have you with us today, John on Everything Fab Four, which, as you know, is a show where we celebrate our Beatles origin stories and and people who love them. But maybe even someday we'll have a a story about someone who dislikes the Beatles, believe it or not. No, 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 no. I wouldn't be here but for the Beatles. Is it true that your own Beatles origin story happens almost in real time with the origins of the Beatles themselves as a a pop phenomenon? Well, I, I had a band with my brother... Uh, in 1962 and we were called the Warriors and uh, you know we really had good times uh, playing Everly Brothers songs that was our thing we tried to be uh, Elvis Presley and uh, I I would do some Roy Orbison's now and again and uh, then we heard this song on the radio Love Me Do and uh, my brother being very smart he had a motorbike and uh, said, let's go and see the Beatles playing. They're doing a show at 
just north of Liverpool, a place called Southport. So we went there uh, April 63. And uh, it was a revelation on many levels because we walked in and there's a crowd of people in this, uh, it was called the Floral Hall in, in Southport by the ocean. <clears throat> and uh, it was amazing to hear this band play so, so well. Uh, they were very well uh, connected sound-wise, vocally, everything. And uh, the, the album hadn't come out yet, but they were actually selling the album at the gig. Which sounds precisely like contemporary music merchandising. We, we, we bought one, and uh, they sang all the songs from the album, plus a lot of uh, Chuck Berry and Shirelles, Please Mr. Postman, which was on the album. And... Uh, fell in love with the Beatles. And uh, I was in a band, so we started doing songs from their album, and of course, Twist and Shout and things like that. So that was the kicking off point. So then when you saw them in April 1963, had the screaming already started? Was it already in vogue? After every song, screaming and cheering, everybody was having a good time. But it was about six months later, me and my brother went to see them in our local town, a place called Blackburn, and we couldn't hear them. It was pandemonium. So then in that brief period, Beatlemania had made itself known across the land, huh? Oh man, big, big time. They were the news of the day and they released another song from the album. And you know, two or three hit records later, people were going bananas. It's interesting that Love Me Do was your gateway Beatles song, as it were, given the fact that they would be moving to such complexity so quickly over the next seven years. Well, that was, that was the key, you see, because, you know, there were old love songs, you know, Please Please Me, and You've Got a Ticket to Ride, and all those songs, the first two or three albums, and then all of a sudden, Revolver, a musical punch in the face for everybody. It was like, oh, my God. And uh, I was in the Warriors still. My brother had left to get married, and I kept on going with the Warriors, Still doing Beatles songs, but then doing uh, Beach Boys, uh, you know, uh, Good Vibrations, all the top 20 art songs. That's how you survive as a band. And uh, Joe Tex songs. And uh, then, of course, Motown kicked in, you know. So that, that pleasure dome of music in the 60s was so wide, you know. And then Zappa, and by, by then, 67, the Beatles conquered the world with uh, Sgt. Pepper, which was like uh, a revolution on every level in music. You know, it was like George Harrison with a song, uh, uh, Sitar. Uh, we were talking about the space between us. Uh, yeah, it was like within, without you. It was like I was in Hamburg then. Taking taking acid because uh, Paul McCartney had taken acid. That was the headline. <laughs> that was the headline at that time. You know, Paul McCartney took acid. I said, "Quick, go get me some acid." You know. I remember one important moment. We were we did a, sh a, a two week stint in, in a club in uh, Munich, and then we went to Hamburg to play at the Top Ten Club and live in a brothel. This is starting to sound eerily familiar, John following the beetle bath and we stopped for some uh, petrol and uh, 
heard this music coming from the little box. In those days, they had little transistor radios, right? And somebody had a transistor radio outside the office. And I went over and I listened. And I went, what the hell is this? Eleanor Rigby. How about that? Eleanor Rigby is like, oh my God. That was in 66, I think. And it was like, what are the Beatles up to, you know? And, uh, you know, it spurred me on to want to do better music, uh, more. Uh, I started writing songs, very bad songs. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but you keep trying, you know? When you began writing your own material, did, yeah. you, did the Beatles benefit you or assist you in any way in terms of structure or subject matter? I think the, I think the the subconsciously you wanted to do stuff on, along the level of uh, the, the arrangements of the you know uh, Abbey Road and the Sergeant Pepper. You just realized that music is very open. And at that time, I heard an album from a band called uh, Vanilla Fudge, and they were a band that changed the direction of music very instantly by slowing down. Uh, Set me free, why don't you, babe? You know, that was a Diana Ross Supreme song. And they slowed it down and they got a number one hit in America. It's like, oh, you can change music around, you can swap it around. So when we started Yes, we were doing uh, a great Beatles song. Um, it was every little thing, right? But we did it like a, a rumbling sort of Tower of Power groove thing, you know. Chris Squire ram, ram, rambling away on his bass, brilliant work, and Bill Bruford, man. And, 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 and we did this song, you know, it was a, a nice, happy song, the Beatles song, and we're just driving it into the ground, you know. I like that description a lot, uh, the idea of driving it into the ground, but you also brought a really welcome sense of drama and excitement, even suspense, which elevated uh, a, a great Beatles song into, well, a great Yes song, right? For us, it was important to work with, with songs that really had great structure in, ter in terms of lyric and, and melodic. And that we did it with Awaken, sorry, Awaken, America. I'm jumping ahead. America, Paul Simon's song, and uh, a great song from um, Richie Havens. And these, these were contemporaries of the Beatles. You know, they all, I, I looked up to these people very much, you know, and... Uh, we were just a band in a band, you know, still trying to make it. So you, you always look up to the contemporaries of, of, of the 60s, the, the major songwriters, producers of that period. When I listen to something like Long Distance Runaround, that to me is is taking this kind of Beatles blueprint and, uh, you know, to use the word again, elevating it. And you've got the time signature shifts, the, the melodicism, the great, the great musicianship, too, um, that, of course, was so essential to Yes, that very high caliber of playing, but that even though the Beatles at times might have seemed simple, it was deceptive, right? I mean, they could really play. True. It's kind of amazing. The, the, everything about, the, the great thing about the Beatles for me was the sound of everything. Every record sounded different. Every song sounded different, and it was still the same people. And the, like you do a song, the, the incredible sound of the guitars. I mean, George Martin, total genius on that level. So when we got into, you know, early sort of albums that we were working on specifically to listen to, uh, you know, the Yes album and then Fragile, 
that's when we really opened up and really found our niche as a, as a band. And that was, you know, again, on, on, on every level, it was from because of the Beatles. <laughs> Well, and again, going back to this idea of, of elevating them, you know, you mentioned the Yes album and uh, your move to me is the single finest distillation of of uh, an homage or an honoring of John Lennon and the yeah. Beatles. Uh, how did that song come about? Well, I wrote a song one morning and got in the studio, started playing it. And, you know, like anything, you know, you're working with music musicians and uh, we're friends, you know, and uh, so we all start playing the song. I said, no, let's let's simplify the song, please. You know, could we just keep it like a heartbeat? Boom, boom. Take a straight and stronger course to the keep it, keep it light, you know? Cause, and then because it's time, it's time. You've got these harmonic harmonies coming in and stuff. And, and then, we're gonna we're gonna build it to a, a, a bigger place. So let's start off minimalization, minimal sort of music, and then all of a sudden come to the the big uh, sort of chorus where we sang we sang da, 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 and said bring me the church organ, please. It was uh, it was Tony K. I'm sure it was. It's such a remarkable crescendo. It just uh, it takes you by the throat. It it's a Rivera moment. The hairs in the back of your neck go go up. Yeah, you just got this big, because it's been, up till then, it's been really nice and cozy and light and don't mess around. And and then it's that massive organ that comes in and, and Tony just takes you away. And, and what was that sound again? How did you describe it? Dun. We'll hear more from John Anderson, including how the Give Peace a Chance chorus originally came about, right after these messages. This is Everything Fab Four, and we're back with John Anderson. John, could you tell us more about uh, the song we just listened to, Your Move, and particularly, could you tell us about, um, about the origins of the Give Peace a Chance chorus, which really is such a lovely addition? I went to doing the vocals... And, and just started singing uh, behind, I started singing uh, Give Peace a Chance. And uh, Rick, Chris, Chris loved that idea. So we, we all got some people in to sing along with us, you know, um, in, the, in the distance, sort of don't want to pretend to know how to sing their songs, you know. Well, it comes off like a, like a wonderful Easter egg for music fans, Beatles fans, Yes fans, you name it. But it is a, a wonderful addition, uh, particularly the instant karma. But you want to uh, honor that moment when it when it hit you, like instant sending instant karma to me. Instant karma came from John Lennon, you know, and it was like that's why give give peace a chance came into the song. I, I actually went to see yesterday 
about three, four, five, six, five months ago, can you believe, with my, <laughs> my wife, my daughter, and uh, son-in-law, uh, we went to see, she, my, my daughter said, come on down, watch yesterday. I said, oh, great, what's that movie? And you know something, as soon as he started playing yesterday, I, I cried and I wept all the way through the movie like a child. I have to ask then, and, and spoiler alert, everything Fab Four listeners about what's coming next. But I have to ask, John, if, you know, loving the film as you did, clearly, um, what did you think about that moment late in the movie when the, the movie works by its own internal logic, meaning that the Beatles were never famous, hence the historical person known as John Lennon would still be alive? I loved it. I loved it so much. You know, I watched it on, 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 a, on a flight two months later and I cried all the way through. And, but I, I couldn't understand why I was so emotional. And that it took about a week and because my, my wife, Janie, she said, are you okay? Are you okay? And, and it was such a great production. You know, it's such a beautifully made movie. A real birthday card to anybody who loves uh, the Beatles. And, and it took me about two days to figure it out. Because I realized, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well into my life here. You know, I'm 75 now and uh, I've done so much music and I'm still doing more music. I wouldn't be doing it but for them. That's the truth. It was so, so inspiring that, that, that period of time to, to, to keep going. I think the idea was to keep going <laughs> because, you know, in a, you join a band and you think it's going to last maybe two or three years, maybe if you can get a record deal sort of thing, you know. Is it correct that uh, a band like the Beatles making it succeeding was not only proof that one could triumph uh, in that industry, but on a granular level, make it out of Liverpool? True. Uh, the one, one of the things that um, is interesting to my career with Yes was that we weren't from the same town. So we didn't have that... Um, commitment to stay together I just wanted to make sure we were going to be better and better and better and rehearse and get better and so on so that's why we changed people in the band because things were not working you know so you have to move on you know love you man but let's get on with the next vision of music and I'm still in that same place you know I'm still working with people all over the world through the internet and uh, for me it's a breakthrough to be able to work with I'm couple of friends in Holland and just do they do orchestration and they do some orchestration of some music I wrote in 1981 and I'm still working with people for the last 15 years through the internet the great feeling of evolving as a musician all started in the 60s you know you once described the Beatles as being very Celtic I wonder if you could say more about that well if you study music a bit which I did for a period of time um, I actually created a, 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 a project for XM Radio when XM Radio started. It's, it's, it's called The Mystery of Music or something, something like that. And the idea was that Liverpool was a port right across from Ireland. So you have a lot of Irish people coming to Liverpool. And there's a lot of Irish energy in Liverpool. And the Celtic energy of Ireland... You could hear it in the Beatles songs. It, it took me a while to figure out how, how these very simple melodic things, you know, 
became so mega famous. And, and from a musical point of view, they reached all the people of the world. Because if you look at music from old, old folk music from Greece, folk music from China, India, the Americas, they all had that Celtic energy. It's a, it's a sort of inbuilt part of the human experience on this beautiful planet Earth. And to me, that's one of the reasons why it reached so many people. There was something about the melodic quality of their, 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 their the tunes that they, that they wrote. And of course, the lyrics, of course, you know, but it was the melodic quality. And you can, you can put together uh, an old folk song of, of Greece with an old folk song of Ireland, and they're exactly the same. We are intertwined musically speaking. That's why music survived uh, on such a level around the world. In your study, did you find that music's elemental quality also extends to other periods and genres? Yeah, I listened a lot to the 40s music because I was born in 44, so I was a kid listening to, uh, you know, big bands and Glenn Miller and, uh, and uh, Count Basie and all these bands, you know, in the 50s as well. So. I was I grew up on big band music and very very well put together songs. Uh, you know, I loved all the Rodgers and Hammerstein movies like crazy. I still do, and that pro pro propelled me into the fifties. And all of a sudden, I heard these two guys singing Everly Brothers songs and those brothers. And uh, but it was the Beatles in a way that sort of I don't know. It was something so miraculous about waiting for their next single. <laughs> Speaking of their next single, it was, of course, famed producer George Martin, who was tasked with uh, preparing those singles for the marketplace. Did you ever have occasion to meet Sir George? Funnily enough, I, I met him twice in the elevator in BB, at BBC. And, uh, you know, I couldn't say anything. Really. I just said, hello. <laughs> when, when I bumped into Paul McCartney, he was backstage at a gig we did. And he was coming down from the dressing room, coming down the stairs, and I was walking up, and I thought, oh, God, it's Paul McCartney. What happened? And he said, roll down, John, sort of thing. And I went, it's Paul McCartney. I couldn't speak. <laughs> you know? It really is quite remarkable at this late date to listen to those records from 50, 60 years ago, particularly the Beatles records produced by George Martin, and marvel at uh, the the fidelity, the high quality that they still have into the present day. Four tracks, that's all they had. And the way they bounced things around, you know, two, four tracks, it was miraculous. I have to say this, I don't particularly like the remixes because a certain something in the original versions uh, that are very poetic and beautiful, there's something very, very clean and pure and as soon as you get a remix of it you, you get you can sense a bit more reverb uh, the vocals aren't as i don't know something not quite as you know sad that's just my opinion i mean people just love the beatles whatever but it's just one of those things i, I always remember um it was a scottish singer and he, he wrote this song called uh Donald, where's your trousers? 
Let the wind blow high, let the wind blow low through the streets in my kilter I'll go. It was one when I was a kid I just loved it so much. And in the late sixties when I settled down, uh I wanted to find that record. And I, I hunted everywhere for that record because because there was something about that sound of that record. It was typical Scottish music, you know, real or with a, a um squeeze box and that kind of thing. It was pure magical. Eventually, I found a recording of it. It was a disco version. I went, oh, no. <laughs> how, could, how could they do that to that song, you know? Oh, my God. Well, speaking of cherished songs, I cannot pass on the privilege of speaking with you without bringing up a song of yours that is central to our family, particularly our kids who just love your song, Loved by the Sun. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Legend, yeah. It was 1985, I think. It was directed by Ridley Scott. And he said, I really like your voice, John. Would you mind singing a song? And I, I just happily got a, uh, I got a tape of uh, a cassette of Tangerine Dream playing this music. And I just wrote some some lyrics and sang it a couple of days later, and then it was uh, it ended the movie. So I always loved doing that song. It was just uh, I've never actually performed it live. It has always struck me as being one of those songs that is more impressionistic than lyrically intentional. I don't know if that makes sense, but in other words, it it tends to hit you on a more ethereal level than communicating something very very specific. I didn't realize, but I was creating a, a style of lyric, singing a lyric, which sometimes was confusing, but not really confusing to me. But, you know, if you, if you listen back to something, I just like the sound of the, the lyric and the way it dances around the music, because the music was kind of very, you know, here, there and everywhere with the band. Is this a hallmark of your work as a composer of lyrics, or is it something different? I was always told to sing, write songs about love, winning love and losing love, and that's a pop song. <laughs> right, although no one would accuse Yes of simply doing pop songs, would they? Changing gears for a moment, um, could you tell me, if you were on that proverbial desert island, which Beatles song would you pick to listen to for all of eternity? Well, it'd be Sgt. Pepper album. <laughs> <laughs> You'd go for the whole record. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it just, uh, it, it's, it's an incredible, incredibly crafted album, album of songs. And uh, I actually did some solo touring and I take my ukulele, I've got one over here. And uh, one day out of the blue, I thought, you know, I could do a day in the life on the ukulele. That'd be fun. And I love doing it. I, I didn't really mind if the audience really didn't like it. I love singing it, you know? And I actually started to say, if, if you speak English, you know, when I was in Chile, I remember, and there's a video of me doing it. I say, sing along, please. I read the news today. And I used to do it sort of reggae. And uh, there's, a, there's a brilliant uh, ukulele player called Jake Imabuka. Baku from uh, Hawaii. It was amazing. And he's making a record now with uh, people like Willie Nelson and old people like me as well. So <laughs> he got in touch and said, what do you want to do? I said, well, check out this video 
of me singing Day in the Life, I'd love to do that. And I actually did a version of it with him. It must be a powerful thing to be able to take a song like that, which is so poignant with lyrics and music that is so melodic coming together in a kind of seamless whole. It must be a powerful thing to reduce it to its lyrics and the sound of the ukulele. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged the comb across my head. On my way downstairs and drank a cup. Somebody spoke and I went to whatever. Apropos of absolutely nothing, but all those years ago when you and your brother sang the Everly Brothers, who was Phil and who was Don? I don't know, because I just sang higher than my brother. So you must have handled all of the Paul McCartney bits for that same reason, huh? Yeah, I, I would do I'm Down. I could do I'm Down. You tell us thinking I can't see. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, are you kidding? We just had John Anderson on Everything Fab Four singing I'm Down. I can't imagine how it possibly gets better than that. We'll see you next time on Everything Fab Four. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.